We are reading from the Gospel of Matthew today, from Matthew chapter 6 and verses 19 to 34. These are God's words. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth, where moths and rust consume, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth consume, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where thy treasure is, there will thy heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be sincere, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is the darkness? No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, be not anxious for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than the food, and the body more than the clothing? Behold the birds of the heaven, that they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and your heavenly Father feedeth them. And are not ye of much more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add one cubit unto the measure of his life? And why are ye anxious concerning clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. Yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God doth so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Be not therefore anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Be not therefore anxious for the morrow, for the morrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Let us thank God for his word. Father, thank you for the scriptures that you breathed out through your Holy Spirit to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Please send that spirit now to help me to rightly divide these scriptures and distribute them to each of us as he has need. Plant it deep in our hearts and help it to grow that we may produce 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I am not sure about the mysterious ways in which God works. I prepared a sermon that is primarily for the men of our church, and today the men of our church are not here. This is our fourth, but not, I think, our final sermon in our series on vocation, on what God calls us to do. I do have at least one more that I would like to preach, but it's been a few weeks since the last one, so let me refresh your memories since I want to build off what we learned last time. The first thing that we have learned about vocation is that God created mankind to take up and share in his work of dominion, that is the work of ordering creation, dividing and filling the world, shaping and refining it. And we learned that this is more than a merely mechanical operation. 
What I mean is, it's not just man physically performing certain tasks in order to move matter around until it looks the way that God said it should look. Instead, man himself is like an integration point of heaven and earth, as revealed in how he is created. He is fitted by God to impress the heavenly pattern into the earth because he himself is the heavenly pattern impressed into earth. That is the job that he is created to continue. And this is fundamental to our calling as Christians because it means that our own daily work participates in God's work, not merely by physical resemblance, but by having spiritual meaning. And of course, it's also fundamental to what the gospel itself is about because Jesus is the second Adam. He is impressing the heavenly pattern into the world until nothing remains that stands out against his rule. That is what the gospel is achieving. He's putting everything into its proper place, and he does this primarily through the modest and mundane work of people like us, his body here on earth. We are, or we should be, doing the work of bringing God's will down to earth to shape the world in a way that expresses his will, which is why we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We also saw that we do this primarily by exercising dominion over what God has given to us, the specific property that he has given us, so that when we are finished with that property, the world looks a little bit more like his kingdom than when we started, and this is preparing us to participate with God in reigning over creation in eternal, restful work in glory. And then we looked last time specifically at the vocation of women. Mankind is called to glorify God in the work of dominion, but men and women don't participate in this work identically. We aren't interchangeable. Women have a special place in this as they are called to be the glory of their husbands. The vocation of men is focused outward to building the world, but the vocation of women is more blessed being focused inward to building their own houses. What I want to consider today is really an implication of the idea that women are the glory of their husbands. We saw last time that women are to build their own houses, to support their husbands in the work of that house, to refine what their husbands give them, to beautify and amplify and glorify what their husbands are up to, so to speak. But what follows inevitably from this is that women need to know what their husbands are trying to do, what they are trying to achieve. Think of the analogy that Scripture gives us of the man being the head of the woman. It's 1 Corinthians 11.3. What does a head do on a body? Well, it directs the body. The head gives purpose to the rest of the body. The head has eyes to see where the body needs to go and to guide the body in getting there. The head has an inner ear to maintain the body's balance. The head is the part that particularly pays attention to the world and takes in information and makes decisions and orients the body. Well, think of a different analogy. We know in Proverbs 12.4 that a woman is the crown of her husband. But how does one gain a crown in Scripture? Well, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul tells us, Know ye not that 
They that run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, even so run that ye may attain. And every man that striveth in the games exerciseth self-control in all things. Now they do it to receive a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Therefore so run as not aimlessly, and so fight I as not beating the air. Whereas he says, to Timothy, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. That's 2 Timothy 4, 7-8. Now obviously the crown that Paul is speaking of here is not a wife. It is the crown of glory that we all look forward to. We sang about just before in the old rugged cross. But the analogy that he uses is helpful to us because it illustrates something about crowns. The, the crown is something that you receive because you have this single-minded purpose. You don't get a crown for running all over the place. You don't go running willy-nilly. You have to aim for the finish line. You don't get a prize for shadow boxing. You get a prize because you knocked out the other guy. You get the crown because you exercise self-control. You fix your eyes on the goal, and you push yourself to achieve it. What does this have to do with a wife being a crown? Well, if you want her to be a crown to you, you yourself must have direction in life. There must be something that you have set out to achieve. Your wife has to be glorious in what she is crowning, and she doesn't know, if she doesn't know what that glory is, how is she to be the crown? If she is to be a crown, of, a crown of glory, there must be something glorious that she is crowning. In other words, if a man is expecting great things of his wife, as he should if she is a worthy woman, he must first be expecting great things of himself. She glorifies you. She magnifies you. She reveals you. So if you don't like what is revealed in your wife, then the first place to look is to yourself. Now, I must be careful here because inevitably someone is going to hear me as saying something crazy, like that if your wife is in sin, it's your fault, or something like that, which basically denies one's agency. Obviously, that is not what I am saying. Proverbs 12.4 also tells us that it is a worthy woman who is a crown to her husband, but that, that she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. And there are plenty of warnings in Scripture about bad women and bad wives, and every woman shall answer to God for her own sins. But what I am saying is that even the worthiest wife can only work with what you give her. A crown is put on someone glorious to make them more glorious. So if you want your wife to be your crown, you have to set the vision for what the glory of your household will be, and you have to set the pace in working to make that happen. And I say you, but I am preaching also to myself. She is your help in this work which means that you are the leader. You must decide on the mission that she will help you to fulfill, and you must communicate that mission to her, and you are responsible to ensure that your house stays on that mission. It's not on her, it's on you. She is fitted to the task of helping you with this. She is not fitted to the task of doing it for you. And 
Indeed, it will make your wife very miserable and very frustrated if you do not set a clear vision for the work that you want her to help you with. This means that within the great calling of God upon mankind as a whole, it is men who must determine how that calling works out in their own houses and upon their own lives. Man's calling is to glorify God and enjoy him forever through his work of dominion. So a husband must know that whatever he is doing, it must be oriented toward that. But then what is his calling within that overarching telos? Or to put it differently, how will he do this? What particular things has God called him to do in order to glorify him in the work of dominion, in the work of impressing the heavenly pattern into the world? William Perkins defines this particular calling as a certain kind of life ordained and imposed on a man by God for the common good. This emphasis on the common good is very helpful to us as we're thinking through what God, what God calls us particularly to do. Obviously, he calls each of us to do different kinds of work, and so we want to be able to think through how that is implemented in our lives. I imagine that if you've thought about this question before, um, you will have spent time wrestling with it because it is a difficult question to work through, and it's one that we must regularly return to in order to assess where we're at and how well we are discerning this calling and whether we need to correct course or redouble our efforts. And when we do this, it's very easy for us to get tunnel vision and focus entirely on ourselves because after all, whose calling is it? It's ours, so we focus on ourselves. So of course, in thinking about our calling, we think about ourselves, but no man's calling exists in a vacuum. And we must be careful not to make our calling about glorifying or serving ourselves. As men, we naturally focus especially on providing for our families. We stress about ensuring that whatever our calling is, it is sufficient to the burden of feeding our households. And that is a good thing to be thinking about because we know that if any man will not provide for his house, he has in fact denied the faith because even unbelievers working with the light of nature know that they are required to do that. But there is a balance to be struck here. Look again at our passage for today in verses 31 to 33. Jesus says, Be not therefore anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first his kingdom." and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, does Jesus mean that we shouldn't be thinking about how to provide for ourselves and our houses? That we shouldn't be working hard to ensure that they are fed and clothed? I think that we don't really need to think that he is saying that. Of course, he is not suggesting that we do not fulfill our obligations the key to understanding him is in the contrast that he draws. Notice how he says, After all these things do the Gentiles seek, but seek ye first, you are to seek first, his kingdom. 
In other words, there is a kind of seeking after the needs of our households that is faithless. And there is a kind of seeking after the needs of our households that is faithful. Remember, our work is supposed to participate in the work of God himself. And the work of God is ordered toward the good of all people. This is why Perkins says that our particular callings are a certain kind of life ordained and imposed by God for the common good. You cannot seek God's kingdom without also seeking its members, the good of its members. A kingdom is made up of people. God cares for each one of these people and seeks their good, and he does so primarily through the work of other people. He gives us his blessings through the work of others. He provides for us. He sustains us. He heals us and teaches us and governs us and feeds us and transports us and shelters us and clothes us through the work of other people. Luther talked about our vocation as the masks of God, saying that God himself is milking the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. But this is only properly true. It is only fulfilled in the most proper sense when the milkmaid is intentionally participating in the work of God by seeking his kingdom. This is obvious if you think about another biblical example. Consider Cain. He was certainly a man with a mission. He was very concerned with providing for his house. He was so dedicated to that cause that he built an entire city for them. Cain went out from the presence of Yahweh and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after his son, Enoch. But we know also that Cain was a murderer of his own brother, and thus a man who tried to tear down the house of his father, Adam. And we know from the events later in Genesis that he is also the prototype for Nimrod, who built both Babel and Nineveh, Great cities dedicated not to the name of God, but to the name of man. Genesis 11:4. they said, Come, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. These men were, in the words of Jesus, Gentiles, that is, unbelievers. They sought after wealth and power not to glorify God, not for the common good of God's people, not to build God's kingdom, but for their own glory, their own good, and their own kingdoms. And Jesus would not have us do this. He places us in the proper orientation. He puts the horse before the cart, instructing us that we must first be seeking the kingdom of God, and then our Father in heaven will add to us the things that we need. We must be working with a mind to our place in God's kingdom and the expansion of that kingdom in the world. With a mind, in other words, to impressing the heavenly pattern onto the world in order for our seeking after anything to be worthwhile. It is not that we should be passive. It is not that we should avoid working hard. It is not that we must repent of being ambitious. Rather, we must be active and hardworking and ambitious for God's kingdom. In other words, 
your mission or your calling must be submitted under the mission of God himself. It must be in service of the dominion mandate. It must be oriented toward the Great Commission, which is just an extension of or republication of the dominion mandate. And we have already talked about how this does not mean that you must be working in the church. The kingdom of God is greater than the church. So I won't labor that point, but I will just briefly remind you of it. Whatever work you do, no matter what it is, is spiritual, provided it is serving God. You can seek the kingdom of God by doing all kinds of work, not just by preaching or evangelism or mercy ministry. Well, you might think that all sounds fine, but how are you to know what your calling is? How are you to know what particular kind of life, as Perkins says, God has ordained for you for the common good? What does God want you to do? And how do you capture that vision in a way that gives you a clear purpose in life, a way to judge whether you are moving closer towards your objective or further away from it? A way that you can see the finish line so you can tell whether you're winning the race or running aimlessly, smacking your opponent in the face or boxing the air. This is a question that all husbands must grapple with, and really all men must grapple with. And scripture is not a how-to manual on this point. It doesn't give us a step-by-step instruction guide. There's no paint-by-numbers method. It tells us that we should figure this out. And it gives us all kinds of wisdom that we can use in doing so, but it isn't a self-help book. It doesn't give us a map to where we need to go so much as it gives us a compass and it is up to us to figure out the terrain and work toward our goal using that compass. So with that in mind, let me offer you some general advice using scripture as a starting point. Proverbs 22.1 tells us that a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. This is similar to what Jesus says about seeking the kingdom rather than seeking mammon, but it is also helpful because it puts a word to what the reward is. Those who seek mammon get riches, but those who seek God's kingdom, they get a name. There's an irony here. Cain sought to magnify his own name through the city that he named after his son. And the builders of Babel sought to make a name for themselves. But those who give themselves up to magnify God's name and God's work are the ones who actually receive a name worth remembering. So a helpful place to start is to ask, what will your good name be? Obviously, I don't mean your literal name, your surname, I mean, at the end of your life, what will you be known for? Your name is a stand-in for that. What will the name of Perkins stand for? What will the name of Jacquet stand for, the name of Rolston? What will people remember you for? This will give you something to aim at. It tells you where the finish line is, so you can run toward it. And this should be a broad vision this isn't a detailed plan. You want to think in terms of principles rather than specific work to be done because the work that you do might change. God gives you all kinds of work over the course of your life. For example, there'd be no sense in Jared deciding he's going to be known as a great bushman if New Zealand's forestry industry goes and collapses in a year. Then where would he be? Oh no, my whole vocation, my whole calling in life is gone. And plus, 
That would not help Mel to know what her place is. How does she glorify him if he is defined by forestry work? What would that even look like when she can't do that work? No, it is better to think in terms of, I think, two things. The character that God has given you and the gifts that he has given you. And not just you personally. I mean, what are the character and the gifts of your household? These are things that are innate to you and to your wife and even to your children as they get older, because, of course, they are made in your image. Things that you can develop through many different kinds of work and in many different ways, and yet you would still be known for them at the end of your life. All of, those, all of that work would participate in the character and the gifts that you have been given. Well, that's easy to say, of course, but what does this really look like in practice? This is all very abstract. So a concrete example, a practical example. Well, I'll look at each of these in turn. I'll look at character and gifting. And I will tell you, not because I want to talk about myself and not because I think that I'm very good at this, but because I want to give you a practical example of how I think it can be done. I will tell you about my vision, our vision, for the character of the tenant name. I don't mean just the general moral character, by the way. I, I mean the, the personality of your household, the spirit of your name. You all know the kind of people we are, the sort of character or spirit that we have, the tenant spirit, the way that we think about this is that we want our name to stand for three things in particular. It doesn't have to be three, you can four or whatever, you know, this is just how we do it. We want our name to stand for integrity, insight, and zeal. Integrity means loving truth above reputation and above comfort and above relationships. Insight, because by the way, truth is a person, so it's not actually above relationships. Insight means knowledge of God's ways and the laws and the patterns that he has given us. And it means discernment in identifying and participating in these so that we can live well and exercise dominion over what is ours. And zeal means a fighting spirit in pursuit of building and guarding worthy things, not just any things, worthy things. Now, is this set in stone? No, of course not. We may adjust it as we get older. We might become more mature and realize that we've made some mistakes there or that we need to make changes. And of course, as our children add their own character to our household, we may make changes also. But that's our best effort right now. That is what we are currently aiming for. It's what seems especially to stand out about the tenant name to us when we reflect on everything that we have done so far and especially what God has revealed to us about ourselves in all the trials that we have come through. This is a certain kind of life that God has called us to, as Perkins would say. So that's the character of our name and it seems it sets an important tone, for want of a better word, to how we go about the work that God has given us. It helps us to describe the way that God has called us to live. But it would be incomplete without describing how we do that. What are the gifts that we have? And these are equally important to setting a clear vision of what one's name stands for. We need to know not just how to live, but what to do, to put it differently. I think that it's wise, again, to think about the gifts of your household rather than just you personally as a husband. Obviously, what you are good at as a man is important to the gifting of your household, but it does not define it completely. 
and you will factor your gifting into the question, but also the gifts of your wife. And as your children get older and can assist you in your work, you, you may factor in their gifts as well. I think you should also think of gifts in terms of what you give to others rather than, you know, we usually think of if someone asks you what your gifts are, they mean, what has God given to you? And that's a perfectly reasonable way of thinking about it. But remember, Perkins' emphasis is on the common good. I think he is completely correct in this. Luther's emphasis is on God caring for us through others. And again, he is correct in this. And that means that when he cares for others through us, he is gifting others with us. We participate in the work of God impressing the heavenly pattern into the earth, and much of that heavenly pattern is bound up with giving of ourselves for the good of others. It's bound up with love, in other words, with one togetherness. Let me, let me emphasize this point, actually. Remember that God's work of dominion does not exist in a vacuum. As I said at the beginning, this isn't just a mechanical operation. He does not just order the physical creation for its own sake. He divides and fills for the sake of all of his creatures, and most especially the ones that are made in his image. It is his kingdom that we are seeking, not just a garden city. It is not a place, it is a people. The garden city must be lived in. It exists for the people, not for itself. And this is why the vocation of women is the pinnacle and the glory of creation. Women, above all, are involved in the work of making people, of creating new images of God himself. Now, men may work at creating the environment and the circumstances for the people to live in, and they may work at providing for the people, both physically and spiritually. But women work at creating the people themselves. But since the people are the chief thing, how do we serve those people as a household? What are the ways that God has equipped us to give to them? What are our gifts for the common good? Here is what we have established as a vision for the gifts of the tenant household. And again, these are fairly general. We want something that is broad enough to set a vision that might involve all kinds of different work, but also narrow enough that it is obviously our vision for our work rather than just a kind of generic Christian family. We obviously want to be in, uh, involved and representing all of the Christian virtues, but we do it in a particular way. So what we have said is that we want our name to stand for teaching, artistry, and hospitality. Teaching means helping others to live well with instruction that focuses on clearly explaining the most important things, the, the concepts or the patterns that contribute the most to a wise life, a God-fearing life. Artistry means that we, not that, not that we are artists necessarily, but that we appreciate and seek after excellence and beauty in our work and in our lives. It doesn't mean being an art snob. It actually means that we believe aesthetics are something that everyone should value because they reflect God himself. And hospitality means being known for making others welcome, but especially for making people's lives better with food, because that is a particular gifting that my wife has. And once again, this is just our best effort to establish a vision of what the tenant name stands for. And this, the tenant name really isn't the point of this sermon. I'm just trying to give you a practical example. This is the kind of life that we want to be known for, and these are the best words that we could think of 
Maybe at some point we'll figure out a better way of seeing it, make other adjustments. And <laughs> lest you think that this all sounds very impressive, or maybe lest you think rather that this sounds a lot more impressive than the reality of our lives that you actually know, I'll also remind you that these are ideals that we strive for. They are aspirations. I'm not saying that we are the models of these ideals, rather that we want to be the models of them. At the end of my life, I hope others will be able to say, Non and Smokey built a house that continues to be known for integrity and insight and zeal and teaching and artistry and hospitality. And they probably won't put it in those terms, and that's okay. They might say, you know, if we succeed, they'll say that the tenants are great writers or teachers or theologians or bakers or possibly great web designers, who knows? Not entirely unlikely, they might also say there were great pains in the backside of corrupt politicians and churchmen. Let's hope so. That's the zeal. But writing books or baking cakes or being a pain in the butt to corrupt people are the specific works that we decide to do in pursuit of the overall calling to these virtues, to be a household with this character, to be a household that gives to others in these ways. <clears throat> So now, it is up to you guys to try to figure out how to apply principles like this in your own households. It is up to you to sit down and ask the Lord, what is he calling you to? What will be the character of your households? How will you give to the common good? What kind of life will you be known for? What will the names of Rolston and Jacquet and Perkins stand for in 20 or 30 or 50 or even 100 years? And what will your good names be that others would choose over great riches? How will you seek the kingdom of God? I think that is enough of a challenge to leave you with for today. And next time I'd like to look at how a man should practically go about leading his house in their common calling and how a wife may support him in that but I will not make any promises about what direction a sermon will go until it is written. So let us, for now, sing our next song, God is our strength and refuge. <laughs>